For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a roundtable conversation with three Black women artists who are living and creating in Southern Arizona. I'll talk with one of my silver screen heroes, actor Carrie Elwes, from the movie The Princess Bride. And Stories That Soar brings us a young boy's experience of visiting his father in a place that no child should have to visit, county jail. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. February is known as Black History Month, but joining us next to discuss Black futures in the arts are four local artists, Liz Deneau, Elizabeth Burden, and Alana Aratem, in a conversation moderated by guest contributor Adiba Nelson. In addition to sharing details of their creative process, these three working artists get real in discussing the concepts of freedom dreaming, ancestral retribution, and the notion of America reckoning with itself through art. This is Alana. What I'm really focused on is uh, showing a representation of Black life, um, Black people. I'm a, I'm a portrait photographer, so my work centers around human figure. And I really am trying to show this elevated version of us that is real, and it's true, and it's there, but oftentimes it does not go noticed. I think the stereotypes are, are generally what we see in the media. And um, and I find it really important, especially now with this uh, constant barrage of attack of what it feels like in this country towards Black bodies and Black black life, that, you know, there there is a counter to that. And um, it's important to me that I am always countering that whenever I'm receiving that message. It's important for me to flip it and to remind not just myself, but everyone that looks like me of who we are, how we do belong here, how mm-hmm. we have created this country, mm-hmm. and our value and our worth. And, and to not fall into this trap of believing this other stuff that mm-hmm. we so often get. Liz know. I think all three of us, um, why we get along so well, kind of have similar missions. We just kind of take it in different directions. Mine is evolving, actually, to be honest. Um, I'm really interested in these kind of hidden histories of the diaspora and the things that we don't know about these people that have survived slavery and Jim Crow and whitewashing and manipulation that has taken place to rid our people of these stories. Those are I'm more into kind of researching those out. But while I'm doing that, I'm also trying to connect with my own ancestry. And it's almost like a personal journey for me. And a lot of my work, my most recent work, deals a lot with caste systems and being a black, light-skinned, biracial woman and what that means and um, what that um, entails and how that biraciality kind of plays out in my life and in my ancestry. The lens is wide, but um, 
but I really enjoy uncovering those hidden histories and I should step back. Sometimes those hidden histories are really horrific. <laughs> they're not great to read over, but they're important to know about. Hidden histories is a, is an interesting phrase to me, and and I think the themes and context of my work are shifting recently. If, if you look at previous work of mine, it was fairly political, if you will, dealing with issues of the day, which are important, I think, to point out, as both Alana and, and Liz have mentioned. But I, I also think the shift that is going on for me right now has to do with post-COVID, post-blank, post-Trump, mm. as well as moving into uh, soon into my 60s. Mm-hmm. And the fact that my Black heritage is not unique, but it is distinct. I mentioned that I grew up in Nebraska. My great-grandfather was the first Black homesteader in the state. And so a lot of the work that I'm doing now explores that history of pride, but also who we displaced as a part of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what was the gift that was given by him and my great-aunts and uncles and my grandparents on the other side that has lessons, not just for me, but I think for many of us um, culturally today. What was it about their freedom dreaming. There are artists that talk about that. What was it about their lives that can help inform us today? My great-grandfather, Henry Burden, walked more than 2,000 miles. He freed himself, (laughs) crossed the Union lines, freed himself, walked 2,000 miles to get that homestead in Nebraska, his 80 acres. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I think about that and, like, would I even walk across the street? (laughs) 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 So... um, Again, it's a point of pride also acknowledging that that was a part of Manifest Destiny, right? So we displaced people. And what does that mean for me as a contemporary African-American woman Mm -hmm. today Mm -hmm. and looking at intersectionality with black, indigenous, and other people of color? Um, that privilege that I earned from that. I think I'm still working on themes around geographies, uh, space and place, around state and societal violences, around legacies and vestiges and palimpsests of historical violence and trauma, but also resilience. We're still here. Yeah. Elizabeth Burden, I wanted to actually segue into a question that I had for you based on the phrase freedom dreaming. The question that I have relates to something that I saw on your website in the work that is called Box Stack. There is a box that has the question, how can we imagine ourselves out of a box we don't even know we're stuck inside? Mm -hmm. How does that particular question relate to this concept of freedom dreaming? So freedom dreaming is a concept I borrow from another artist whose name is Tourmaline, who borrows it from civil rights uh, and activists. And it, it has to do with not just fighting against what we don't want, but imagining what we do want. The quote about boxes is from a book by Jackie Wong um, that really looks at the carceral state. Why it relates to my artistic practice is, you know, I'm trying to create with my artworks, whether they be drawings, paintings, uh, installation, coding, mapping, a space for critical thinking, critical reflection, and critical feeling. I think that's how we get out of the boxes. We first have to be clear about trying to see the box. And those of us who know those issues can see that very clearly. And then once we see that, I think we have to think about not just what we don't want, Mm -hmm. but what we do. That actually leads me to 
a wonderful tie-in for you, Liz, to know with the current work that you are doing in relation to box and freedom dreaming. Your current work seems to speak directly to the atrocities of slavery, the realities of what happened in this country, but from the standpoint of the slave. I think if we're going to be very real about it, there was constant freedom dreaming, right? Mm -hmm. Pieces that you have like Josiah's Cabin, and I don't want to mispronounce this, Maitre Lafeu. Maitre Lafeu. Or that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They seem to scream with something that I like to call ancestral retribution. I don't know if I made this phrase up, but it just makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Where the slaves, they finally get to have their say. And they tell their story via you and the art that you are putting out there. Can you tell us what it's like creating these pieces? And what does that freedom dreaming look like for you as you're creating? It's organic and not to get woo-woo, but it's for my ancestors. Um, I started making Metro Lefou, which is just kind of an overarching commentary on these kind of ley lines of slavery throughout our our nation um, and how it has affected us. I don't think we ever leave the plantation. The plantation's always in our heart white and black people and until we like deal with that it's always going to be there and cause havoc when i create i talk to my sculptures um i say good night to them when i leave my studio um they are living things to me and um i ask i do like my little rituals to um gain inspiration from my ancestors and also directly taking from the research that i have about whatever piece I'm doing, such as Josiah's Cabin is about Josiah Henderson, who was um, the original quote unquote Uncle Tom, although he never got any of the proceeds, but he was the inspiration as well as the Edmondson sisters, which I am making um, work about right now. But what really happens is the sculptures tell me what they need. So I'll say this sculpture is telling me she needs pearls. And then I'll say, why am I thinking about pearls? And then I'll learn about the Pearl Incident, which is the largest slave escape attempt in American history. So there is a bit of, you know, supernatural, like maybe woo-woo stuff going on around it, which I think um, I'm not very much that person, but I'm leaving myself open to it as I create. But it sounds like in doing that, inadvertently, you are giving them a sort of freedom. Yeah, I see these sculptures as vessels. I can't go back and punish. There's also a lot of anger about what happened to my ancestors, what continued to happen to us um, and other people of color, and I can't bring about that retribution. So I create these altars, these vessels for, um, for ancestral retribution, which is beautiful. Now I'm going to turn to you, Alana, um, and I want to speak specifically to one of my favorite pieces of yours, how to make a country. Right now we're celebrating Black History Month, the month where we acknowledge and celebrate the endless contributions that Black people have made and are still making to this country. And I always think about this piece because it harkens back to that famous Betsy Ross painting, right? Mm -hmm. Where she's sewing the American flag, except in this particular piece, it is actually you, a Black woman, sitting on the stool, sewing an American flag, but at your feet is a basket of fresh picked cotton. Can you tell us about the message or the feeling that you're trying to convey when you were putting this piece together and how that ties into freedom dreaming? You know, when I'm making my work, I am trying to create a narrative or I'm trying to create a world that I want to live in. And that world is 
obviously more just, um, more truthful, and is more of an equal playing field for everyone. So I'm like world building almost in a sense when I'm making these portraits. You know, oftentimes I go into the studio because I <laughs> I have a feeling about something <laughs> like there's an anger or there's a frustration or there's a, a longing or a sadness. There's an emotion that I need to put someplace. And How to Make a Country came out of one of those types of periods where I'm sure I saw something on the news that <laughs> made me feel a certain way. And, um, and I just happened to look up and I saw this flag hanging in the studio and and I started thinking about all the contributions that black people have made to this country that we'd never get credit for. I mean, we can go down a list of amazing invent black inventors here during Black History Month that people have never heard of before. But, you know, things that we use and enjoy all of the time, right? So I'm, I was in that mindset of thinking about that. All of the stuff that we have contributed and created to make this country so amazing. You know, I'm looking at this flag and I'm thinking about a story somebody told me about Betsy Ross may not have even been a real person. And I thought, that is so interesting that we give credit to this person that, who may or may not have really existed. But honestly, that flag never would have been created without a black woman. You know, black women were out there picking that cotton or picking that hemp to make the flag. And certainly they were the ones to do the labor to sew it. So that to me just speaks to so much of what we have done in this country culturally to make it such an amazing place. And I just, it's important that through my work, I'm sort of reclaiming these narratives and turning them into what I see to be more of a truthful narrative. I just feel like that's my purpose with the work. So how to make a country speaks to that. You know, and she's looking away from the camera because I feel like we need to be able to take back our gaze. We need to be able to take back that control, to be able to control that narrative. So everything in that photo is very deliberate and speaks to the reclaiming of truth. Black women are going to save the world. We've heard it said a million times. That's the weight that we have on our shoulders. Um, but I often follow that up with, and Black artists will be the ones to document it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so as three powerful black women artists, do you feel that pressure of having to save the world and document it at the same time? Or is the artwork itself the saving and the documenting simultaneously? I think the artwork is, if not the saving, it is the process through which people can find salvation mm -hmm. um, as well as um perhaps the documentation for me. Because again, what I'd like people to do is to think, feel, do. And I think that that process is a part of the saving that you're speaking of. So it's to not just hear about a concept like freedom dreaming, but to engage in it themselves, even if it's in a small way, uh, as a part of engaging with the work. Liz Dano or Alana, either of you want to tag on to that? This is Alana. You know, I struggle with this because it always feels like the labor that goes into <laughs> needing to educate or save the world should not land on us. 
I like to think that the work is there to inspire. Mm-hmm. My job as an artist is to stay open to what Liz Deneau was saying, this sort of like entity, this this energy that sort of works with you and guides you to, to make this work. My job is to stay open to that and create. And I'm hoping that through that, that that is something that other people can feel. And maybe through that feeling, there can be some healing or there can be some opening of uh, perspectives, you know. I really do. I try to step back and take a break away from this idea that, like, there's this heavy lifting that needs to be done. Um, And it's weird. Like, sometimes I feel like there's no way around it. You know, recently I I made a series of self-portraits during uh, the pandemic, you know, because I couldn't get people into the studio to photograph. And I really just wanted that to be an exercise for me to play, you know, because I, I, I miss play. You know, the work can be very heavy. The history that you have to research can be very heavy. So I just wanted to play and I wanted to remind myself that, you know, the craft that I'm engaged in, this practice that, that I've committed to is fun, you know, and it should be fun. But in that very act of stepping back and reclaiming that fun, that in and of itself is political, <laughs> I realized, you know, because we don't, we're not afforded that. We're not supposed to do that. And so I just think that uh, the work is, is going to do what it's supposed to do. And, and I really want to get out of this idea that, like, I have, I have to, like, make a, uh, you know, like, I'm in control of, of anything outside of that. Saving the world through play would be a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. That would be great, right? It sure would be. Liz, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I would just like to say that... Um, As an artist uh, living in this country right now, I definitely feel a sense of urgency with my work. Mm -hmm. um, And I have to fight against it. And I've just started learning that I don't have to move so quickly. In the art world in general, there's this idea of produce, 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 produce. And we live in the society of production. And so now I'm trying to move back against that. And I also try to move against the obligation that I feel um, to make and document work. Um, and I would just agree with what Liz and Alana said and, and, and also like highlight that this is part of creating even about the most ugly things that have happened to us is an act of black joy and re- resistance. Mm-hmm. And so focusing on those, just what you produce out of that is going to change the world no matter what. Fantastic. Ladies, thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation and we're just going to let it do what it do. <laughs> thank, you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Joining me were Southern Arizona artists Liz Deneau, Elizabeth Burden, and Alana Aratam. If you would like to hear more of our conversation or find out where you can see their work, please head to the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Adiba Nelson. When any book is made into a feature film, there are people who will say, well, the book was better. As a longtime fan, I can personally attest that that is true with William Goldman's 1973 comedic novel that was called The Princess Bride, S. Morgenstern's classic tale of true love and high adventure, The Good Parts Version. 
Director Rob Reiner brought it to the screen in 1987 as The Princess Bride, with an all-star cast but two virtually unknown lead actors. The film was not a box office hit, but it has gone on to have a dedicated worldwide fan base, largely thanks to generations of families who have handed the movie down like a treasured heirloom. A story of fencing, fighting, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love and miracles, but mostly true love. It was the first starring role for the then 24-year-old London-born actor Carrie Elwes. In 2014, Elwes wrote the book As You Wish, Inconceivable Tales from the Making of the Princess Bride. It was all about the deep bonds that are still shared between those who made the movie and the fans who love it. He'll be visiting the Fox Tucson Theater on March 4th to tell his stories to a live audience, and I jumped at the chance for an interview. After it seemed like we might have missed our chance to connect, the studio phone rang, and Carrie Elwes explained his lateness with what sounded exactly like something his character Westley might also have experienced. I apologize. We were stuck in a canyon. <laughs> a canyon? <laughs> Uh, yeah, behind a car that had broken down, and we were stuck. So sorry. Well, exciting adventures in a canyon. Um, just happy to hear from you today. I feel like I've been preparing for this interview for um, a big part of my life. Oh, thank you, Mark. <laughs> well, something I learned about you from your book is that we both were exposed to The Princess Bride at an early age, just 13 years old, when a friend of mine's mother recommended that I read it. Under what circumstances did you first get a hold of the book? What I really became fascinated with was the pseudo-autobiographical framing device that William Goldman used. I remember being shocked that he would talk about his son and his wife in the way that he did, only to find out quite a while later that those people didn't even actually exist. Yeah. It was the first time I'd seen that device, and I completely bought into it because he was so deft at being able to convince you when you were reading his work that you were reading either uh, somebody's biography or autobiography or whatever. And, and this was so great, that the, the whole tale of S. Morgenstern and him trying to track it down. I, I loved it. In my mind, that also made the book somewhat unfilmable. It was hard for me to conceive of how the different parts of the story would be able to be fit together into, an, into a movie. Do you, do you have any insight into how that process played out? Was it William Goldman himself or perhaps Rob Reiner who made the decision to streamline the framing story? Well, it was kind of a bit of both, really. Um, Bill had had the script, obviously, since 73, when he first written the book. And he'd shopped it all over town. And nobody thought it could be made into a movie. And um, it was really Rob who sat down with Bill and said, you know, I think we can streamline this into just the tale and make it from the kid and the grandpa's point of view. You know, make it as cheaply as possible because we didn't have any money. <laughs> and, um, and I think it was out of economics that we were forced to streamline it the, the, way, the way we did, yeah? Well, your book is very entertaining on audiobook because of the voices, how you make the characters in the story come to life, including the way you do Rob Reiner saying hello to you every time you run into him. That's a, a great sound, and it actually reminded me a lot of how Peter Falk sounded around the time when you made the movie. Yeah, I, did. I only got to shake his hand once. I came down to the set when he was shooting and just wanted to meet him because I'd been such a fan uh, for such a long time. And 
that was one of the great blessings of being on the film, getting to work with people I admired. Thank you for saying that. Uh, Rob was very, he was very easy to work with. He, he made, made it uh, a joyful experience for all of us. What do you think allowed you to connect with Rob early in the project? It seems like by the time he's come to visit you in the hotel for your first uh, meeting, it seems like you were already on board and on the fast track to becoming Wesley. Well, I wasn't, actually, Mark. Um, there were a lot of other actors he was reading and seeing before he came to me. And uh, I think it was Bill who had seen uh, Lady Jane and recommended me. Um, and so they they screened the movie, and then he thought, okay, this kid might be able to do it. So that's when he got on the plane to, to visit me while I was shooting in Berlin. Well, you were certainly aware of his work on Spinal Tap, but even more than that, uh, Rob Reiner was already a familiar face and voice to you as a young person. Well, I was fortunate that I had a, an American stepfather, so I, I enjoyed spending time here as a kid and enjoyed American pop culture, you know, from the 70s, and uh, watched American television voraciously. <laughs> and so I saw almost every show. So I, I was thrilled to get to work with Rob. I knew exactly who he was, and I knew his father. I had educated myself to the entertainment world, and Spinal Tap obviously being huge at that point made him a star in my eyes, Yeah. What do you think helped Reiner and his co-producers make the decision? Why do you think you ended up becoming Wesley? Any clue? You know, you'd have to ask them. I, I still marvel at the, at the decision, and, and obviously I'm grateful for it. Um, but, you know, one never knows why one is picked and other people aren't, or why you're not picked and other people are. It's just one of those things. I think I'd, I was ready for it. I think that was part of it. I'd read the book, as you said, and um, I knew Bill Goldman's work. I was a huge fan. And obviously, Rob was surprised that I knew his work, too. And so I think there was a rapport already going on at that point. And I think they knew I could tackle the comedy of it and the swashbuckling of it and all of that. And, uh, and so we went to work. Well, you got to meet so many amazing people working on the film. I know that a large part of what you do when you present this book before an audience, like you're going to do here at, at the Fox Tucson Theater, is you recount these meetings. And my mind goes first to Robin Wright that you spend a lot of time praising in your book. Robin was, was fantastic and, and uh, had enormous talent, as we all realized right away. She had... Uh, she understood the role very well, which was a really tough role to do, really, because everything happens to her. She's the titular character, but, you know, she loses the person she loves, and, and you know, it's a lot to figure out and play it just right, and she did, you know. You've had the chance to reunite with many of your cast members over the years, and when I heard that the cast had done a table read of The Princess Bride back in 2020 at a time when uncertainty was dominating every news story, it seemed so reassuring that you all chose to get together. What's a memory from that event? Well, I decided to put it together. I saw the way things were going politically, and I'm a little bit of a social activist, and uh, I contacted a friend of mine in Wisconsin, and I said, you know, I know this is a battleground state, and because I had a friend there who was connected politically, I asked her, what could we do to try and raise money for the 
Wisconsin Democrats. So she put me in touch with the with the head of the Wisdoms, yeah, Ben Wexler. Initially, it was discussed that we would just do a sort of phone in and all of us chat and reminisce and stuff. And I said, I think we'd raise more money if we did a, you know, a table read, you know, a live kind of Zoom read. Then things took off fairly quickly after that. You know, there was a concern, could we really pull the whole cast together? And once I told them all what it was about and what it was for, they were they were all, all in, which was great. The only person who couldn't make it was Fred Savage because he was busy on another show. Talking about the connection that you still share with your co-stars, your audiobook is constructed in a very unique way where we hear their voices, we hear their own words coming in from time to time and sharing their perspective and memories. And I wonder what that was like for you. So I interviewed them all, which was great fun, and picked their brains and got stories that I didn't know from them, which was so fun. And that's, you know, always a joy. You know, I didn't think anyone would ever write a book from all of us talking about this beloved movie. And I thought, why not just share it with everybody and give the fans a real treat? Yeah, it becomes exactly that. It becomes like being at a cocktail party with the cast of your favorite film. There's a line in, in the book that has stayed with me all these years. There's many, many lines, like like most fans. I've got my favorites. But there's something that Wesley just kind of tosses out there in a very offhand fashion when asked why he wears a mask. Oh, they're terribly comfortable. Everyone would be wearing them. Yes. I believe he says, I predict in the future, everyone will wear them. That's what I think of now when I go out into a masked environment. Uh, It's a different kind of mask, but I still think that there was wisdom in those words. And maybe it makes getting through this time a little bit easier. Thank you. I I think you're right, Mark. You know, (laughs) Bill Bill Goldman's still laughing and making jokes from beyond the grave. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Once again, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you, Mark. We're going to be in Tucson on March 4th. Come on down to the lovely Fox Theater on Congress Street. It's right there in downtown Tucson, right off the 10 freeway. Come on down. We'll have some fun. We'll reminisce and tell stories about Princess Bride. Many thanks to actor and author Carrie Elwes. The Tucson nonprofit Literacy Connects sponsors a group of performers and musicians called Stories That Soar. Their mission is to help young writers realize the power and possibility of bringing their stories to life in any medium. Next, we'll hear the personal experience of a boy who misses his father so much he's willing to go on a difficult and frightening journey. This is Dad in Jail, written by Mario, a third grader in the Tucson Unified School District. This summer, I went to go see my dad in jail. It looked like a, like an army place, with wires and chains. Hello, son. Hi, Dad. Come on, we can go hang out in my room. We went into his room. I felt scared. Hey, what's wrong? We went to lunch. The food was nasty. It made me feel sick. What's wrong? 
Nothing. I'm I'm just not hungry. Next, we went outside to play basketball. <laughs> oh, check this out. Oh, all right. Yeah. One. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Shoot. Oh, good shot. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, I won. Great game, son. That was really fun, Dad. Finally, we went back to my dad's room. Are you tired? Do you want to go to sleep for a while? When my dad said that, I was not scared. That story was written by Mario, a third grader in the Tucson Unified School District. It was produced by the team at Stories That Soar. Last year, Stories That Soar was one of 14 literacy programs in the entire world to be recognized with an award from the Library of Congress. They were chosen as a best practice honoree for promoting literacy using innovative methods. Interested student-age readers can feed their stories now to the Magic Box Story Portal at literacyconnects.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. Production assistance by Itai Sofer. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.